Mark 7. Uh, we've been asking three questions as we work our way through Mark. Who is Jesus? What's he about? And why did he die? And uh, we've seen pretty clearly that he's about the kingdom of God, bringing the restoration of the king, um, the great mission of the king to restore his kingdom, to set right all that's wrong. But we've also encountered in, in recent chapters um, some startling opposition. Uh, religious leaders are opposed to him. He had a, uh, a very unwelcome reception in his own hometown. Even his own disciples don't understand him. And the last chapter concluded with a note that they had hard hearts. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at sort of obstacles to uh, receiving this kingdom. Obstacles to buying in, to uh, understanding what Jesus is all about and what he's bringing. And the obstacle we're discussing tonight is uh, very personal. It's meaning has to do with each one of us. It's our uh, problem admitting that we actually need help. Problem admitting that we need no less than God to enter into our affairs to help us. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the kingdom of God and uh, receiving it. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together under your word. We thank you that you've preserved it. For our, our use, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show us wonderful things about yourself and our need for you in this word tonight. Holy Spirit, be gracious to press these words into reality in our hearts. Sharpen our dull minds, soften our hearts, we pray. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you've been around much, you know I uh, frequently use Shel Silverstein because uh, he's a wickedly looking man. With a bald head and an awesome beard. That's one of the reasons I like him. But also uh, because he writes about very serious matters in a very humorous way to children, which I find very subversive, and I like that. And uh, in, in one of his poems called Mon God, um, he's asking some really interesting questions, one, one big one in particular. Uh, God gave us fingers. Ma says, use your fork. God gave us voices. Ma says, don't scream. Ma says, eat broccoli, cereals, and carrots, but God gave us tasties from maple ice cream. God gave us fingers. Ma says, go wash them. But God gave us coal bins and nice, dirty bodies. And I ain't too smart, but there's one thing for certain. Either Ma Ma is wrong or else God is. Uh, The question he's uncovering is, is, is one I think we sometimes feel acutely. There's a life to be lived, and a fun one at that. And all kinds of desires we have would seem to be good. There are also all kinds of rules. And even the most uh, mischievous of us would admit that lots of those rules are good and necessary. Uh, the question is, or, or, it's a real problem. It strikes the real fundamental basics of life. How are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to live well? And if you're a Christian, how are you supposed to live rightly with God? Uh, with this mixture of desires and longings, and pleasures, and rules. And um, he boils it down to Ma versus God, but I'd like to interject another variable into the equation. Maybe it's not Ma or God that's wrong. Maybe it's myself. Uh, Maybe the fundamental problem is something within. The folks in our account, and there's a bunch of them, um, all share a problem that we have. They don't know how to live rightly. And they're prone to misunderstand the real heart of the issue, the real nature of the problem. And because of that, they apply um, inappropriate treatments and solutions. They, they misdiagnose the real condition, the real problem, 
and they they apply an, an inappropriate solution and uh, get less than uh, pleasing results as 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 part of that. However, there's good news in our text, and we're going to see tonight that because our hearts this does not sound like good news, but it's good news because our hearts are desperately broken. We need scripture to understand our hearts, and we need Jesus to heal them. Sort of a complicated main thought, but I really couldn't make it any simpler, because I think this text is about all these things. Because our hearts are desperately broken, we need scripture to understand them, and we need Jesus to heal them. Okay? Um, we're going to ask three questions, and I feel like I have to do a lot of setting things up tonight, because there's a lot of things going on. Uh, we're going to ask, how do we miss the problem? What's the heart of the problem, and is there hope for the problem? But you might be wondering, what's the problem? Like, and, and the problem is that we have badly broken, dysfunctional hearts. And uh, you shouldn't accept that yet. It's just given, because I haven't actually proved it from the text. So there it is. It's a provision. We have badly broken, dysfunctional hearts. And uh, uh, the burden's on me to prove to you that this text uh, says it so, and it accords with the reality that you know in your own life. Given that real problem, how do we miss it? How do we misunderstand it? What's at the heart of it? What's at the center of it? And is there hope for it? So we're going to ask how do we miss it first, but we need to set up context and uh, really interesting things going on here. Pharisees and scribes have come and gathered to him from Jerusalem, and he's not anywhere near Jerusalem. Last time these kind of folks met with Jesus, they were very angry. It was back in chapter 3. They were so angry they went out and conspired with some others how to put him to death. So we could consider this a less than friendly visit. Um, this is no accident. They've come. If you will, this is a, uh, a tribunal sent to do some investigation. And uh, pretty quickly, they find something they don't like. In verse 2, uh, they notice that some of his disciples or his men eat with hands that are defiled, that are not washed. And, and the issue here, in verse 5, after this long parenthesis of explanation that Mark gives us, is that uh, there's a tradition, there's a common practice of washing uh, and they don't do it. And therefore, in the eyes of the religious elite, and even of the common people, the disciples are defiled, less than holy. Uh, they don't really care about God and his standards. Uh, that's the common practice. And, and the contention here, the assumption they're working through, that Jesus is slowly going to take a... Well, actually, he's not going to slowly take it apart. He's going to blow it up. Is that um, it's things out there, external to us, that defile us or make us impure. Their assumption is, because you're not washing, because you're not doing all these things, you're defiled. And uh, there are things out there that defile you, and that's the problem. And uh, that's what they charge Jesus with. And Jesus' response, it's a question actually, in verse 5, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And I don't know what they expected in reply, but it was probably not what they got. In verse 6, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, Hypocrites. And uh, I like this response for lots of reasons, because I like to be sarcastic. And uh, I find here sort of a justification for that. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? And uh, again, he, he speaks to them with a little edge further down. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments. Jesus' little twist with words brings me joy. But uh, it shouldn't, because it's a serious charge here. He's called them hypocrites to their face. And the word here is not... Uh, someone that's double-minded as much as it is, someone that's an actor. They're wearing a mask. 
they might not even be aware that they're doing it. They have an external appearance, but a different internal reality. And I want us to assume tonight that these folks are actually well-intentioned. They're not doing all this stuff trying to fool you into thinking they're holy. They actually think this makes them holy. They are working really hard to live in a vital, real relationship with God. And Jesus, at the end of it, says, you're still hypocrites. So the question is, how do they miss it? How do they misunderstand it? And if these men that spend their whole lives, and all the people too, can misunderstand it, can we misunderstand it? How do we misunderstand it as well? And uh, the first part of our misunderstanding, why we don't get the problem, why we sometimes miss the problem, is because we come down on a wrong location. These folks, according to Jesus' analysis in verse 15, he says, uh, of them, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Again, in verse 18, it says the same thing. You think that it's stuff out there, external to you, that, that defiles you, that makes you not right with God. The things that can separate you aren't internal, but external. And we still sort of think that way. You probably got more of this when you're in your parents' home. Don't go hang out with those people. Don't go to these things. Those things are bad for you. They'll make you a bad person or ruin your life. Um, but this culture really thought, thought this was true, that external forces, pressures, um, and simply evil could be contracted. Um, that, it was, that the problem was out there. And Jesus is saying, you've got the wrong location, that external things don't defile. The problem's not out there. But if you think the problem is out there, external, the solution you're going to adopt is going to be inappropriate. Akin to, you know, you really have uh, physiologically an internal problem. You decide what I really need is a topical cream or a Band-Aid. You've applied the wrong solution at the wrong location. And so their solution is wrong. What they've done is they've received from God in verse 8 clear commandments. You leave the commandment of God. And God was really clear about his commandments. And they're, and they're actually not too hard to understand. Jesus clarifies them for us, but the Old Testament did a pretty good job. We're called to love God and love neighbor. And the Ten Commandments pretty clearly tell you how to do that. They're not very detailed, but they're very simple and demanding. Um, and then the rest of the law sort of expands on what those Ten Commandments look like in that particular culture which doesn't mean it looks like that everywhere. Well, what's happened is, over time, especially in these two centuries, uh, folks said, what we really need to do is to protect all that law by building a fence around it. See, if we're really careful about breaking these laws outside the law, then we'll never break the law outside the law outside the law. So it's sort of like saying, I can't go 55. So if I decide never to go 40, 54, I can never go 55. Actually, if I get too close to 54, maybe I should agree to never go faster than 53. Before you know it, you rationalize going 45 and a 55. In some ways, that's what these folks are doing. Uh, they're missing the law by scaling it back further and further so they'll make sure they don't break the heart of it. And Jesus is telling them, um, it's very interesting, guys. I understand what you're trying to do. Um, but this is not God's word. This is not... God's commandments. These are your commandments. The text starts off saying, um, I think it's like verse 3 somewhere, the tradition of the elders. That's when Mark describes it. Look how Jesus describes it. Uh, Verse 8, you leave the commandments of God to hold to the traditions of men. Not the elders, just men. And then in verse 9, you have a final way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Elders, smelters, this is what you want to do. These are your rules. There's nothing special about these things. And these laws are holding here in verses 3 and 4, these things they're doing. Uh, there's no biblical precedent for it. The only people that did this in the Old Testament were priests. People that were specially 
chosen by God for a specific task. And the reasoning was this. The priests are supposed to be really, really, really holy. That's a good thing to aspire to. So we should do that too. And we should make everyone else do it. So if you will, this is folks saying, it's good to study for the test, but we should also do the extra credit all the time. And everyone else should too. There's nothing wrong with doing extra credit all the time, is there? And Jesus says, actually, there might be. In verse 9, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. In effect, these folks are settling for the extra credit and refusing to take the rest of the test. Um, they have rejected God's word in favor of what suits them. And actually, it, it's, it's, uh, it makes sense in lots of ways. Um, the further out you go to protect the heart of the law, the further you get removed from what the law is actually meant to do, which is to convict you. You see, God's words, his commandments, they're not very detailed. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't covet. Don't murder. Uh, they're very simple, but they're very demanding of our hearts. And these laws aren't very demanding of the hearts. They're very specific. They tell you exactly what to do. You either do them or don't do them. And they actually, you can sort of, your heart can do whatever it wants while you're obeying these, these trifles. So it's no surprise if you have the wrong location and the wrong solution that you get uh, bad results. And what Jesus says is now you have a wrong relation. Wrong location, wrong solution, you get a wrong relation. You think the law, and you're right, the law is supposed to lead you to love God and love others. What's it done? It's made you a hypocrite, verse 6. You honor God with your lips, but your heart's far from Him. You think this is supposed to make you right with God or close to God. In reality, all it's done is externalize your relationship with Him. You've become... Uh, a phony, an actor. You're doing all the external things right, but your heart's not changed and you're not close to God. It's ruined your relationship with God. And it actually ruins their relationship with other people. And Jesus just gives one example of how they do this. We're called to love God and love neighbors, but if you're always externalizing the law like this, settling for trifles and taboos instead of really going to the heart of the matter, you'll find ways to actually not love your neighbors while fulfilling God's law. So they had this law where you could dedicate everything to God called Corbin. And it actually allowed them not to do the first big social commandment. The first social commandment of love your neighbors was love your mommy and daddy and honor them. And then conveniently for them, they found a way to be devoted to God and not love their parents. And Jesus calls them on it. So, wrong relations as well. In high school, I took Latin for four years. I had no idea why I did that. Um, and in our fourth year, um, or what I got out of it, except for this story, and uh, our last year we had a new teacher. Latin teachers are always very strange, idiosyncratic folks. Um, both of mine were. And our last guy was particularly so. He's one of the strangest folks I've ever met. And it was five weeks into the semester, and we had, never, we had not done anything. We learned supposedly a bunch of stuff and got an assignment, but never had a quiz or a test five weeks into the semester. So we walk in one day, and he says, okay, pop quiz, and every one of us. We're like, oh no! <laughs> talk about talk about being lax. Five weeks of doing nothing. I mean, we hadn't paid attention in a month, and uh, it was one of those deals where I sort of knew what I was supposed to know, but didn't know it. Like I knew I was responsible for this material, and that what I looked like in, in Latin. You do these paradigms. We have like three and three, and you're supposed to fill the stuff in. So I knew sort of what I was supposed to do, but not really. And so what I did was I just sort of like drew out the blanks and wrote some letters in there. 
and thought, you know, a little extra credit. I'll, I'll, I'll fight for every point I can. I'm going to fail this, but fight for every point I can. So I, I did the equivalent of what I thought was an extra credit on this thing. Well, strange result uh, received back. And I think I've got the lowest score in the history of any test in the world. I received a minus 12. Yeah. And, I, and I actually deserved it. Because I got everything wrong that I was supposed to get right, and I actually answered more things than actually existed. In doing extra credit, I gave extra answers that didn't really exist, so I got more things wrong than there really was. It was a case, just like this, of extra credit making me more wrong. Extra credit can make you more wrong. And that's what's happening here. They're striving really hard to please God, and it's actually getting them further and further away from Him and His will for them. Yep. So that's pretty funny. Now, uh, now let's see how you're doing on your test. Verse 6. These people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How does that feel? Can you put that shoe on for a second? Does it fit you in any way? Does it describe you? Can, can you feel the dissonance? Uh, you, might, you and God might be the only person that knows this. That uh, you walk out your room wearing a different face, attitude, and projection than you actually carry around in your own heart and mind the rest of the time. Because the rest of the time you know pretty much exactly who you are and what you like and what you're like. But you don't want anyone else to see that. God might know, you think. He certainly does know. Um, do, you, do you know this reality that you're not what you're supposed to be and that you're often working very hard to appear something else? God certainly knows. He certainly does. I'm not trying to beat you up over it. I'm simply saying, we do this stuff too. We find external rules and laws that make us feel good about ourselves and make us think we're okay with God. And a lot of times, we're nowhere near as close to God as we act or project or seem to be. And this kind of hypocrisy is actually, I think, completely inevitable, unavoidable. It will characterize you unless you really understand the heart of the problem and address it rightly. What's the heart of the problem? Well, part of the problem is you, your heart. It's uh, what Jesus goes on to explain in the rest of chapter 7. It's that uh, the heart is corrupt. Uh, the religious serious folks here, the Pharisees and scribes and others, they want to say the problem is exterior, outside of us. And Jesus says, actually the location of, of the problem is much, much closer to you. It is you. It, it's the very essence of you. It's your heart. It's, it's, the heart corrupts you. The heart defiles you. Nothing else. Uh, verse 20 and 21. He said to them, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, and so on. It's, it's from within that these things flow. It's, Jesus is describing our condition. And this is not to say that human beings are the worst creatures ever. Um, this is not the way we were created. Uh, this is part of the biblical story and the way we make sense of this reality. The way we make sense of the fact that humans still do good things. We're not nearly as bad as we could be. Um, that we were made in God's image. 
that we're deserving of respect, that even the worst person is deserving of respect because he's made in God's image. But that sin has thoroughly corrupted us so that each of us has a corrupt heart. And out of that corrupt heart, we produce sin. It's what you see in 21 and 22. From within, from this heart, flow evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And you get the sense he could keep going on, but he decides it's time to stop somewhere. And what he's doing is naming off in sort of the opposite of all the Ten Commandments. Exactly what it means not to love God and your neighbor. That's what we naturally produce from our hearts. It's not the case, and we, this is really hard for us culturally, because we are pretty sure that bad things make bad people. Bad actions are what make people bad. Um, but Scripture says over and over, we weren't created to be this way. There are all kinds of influences in the world that, that are real. Our parents, our society, institutions, events that happen to us. But in the end, we are still responsible individuals. And uh, it's our hearts and how we process things and how we respond to them that make us who we are. So while producing this, uh, this river of sludge uh, into the world, I give you of myself Blech, all this junk. At the same time, the heart is deceiving. It deceives us. We've talked about this over and over. And it's, it's really simple to see how this happens. It's because the same heart that's doing this is also doing verses 1 through 5. The Pharisees don't have different hearts. They didn't go get theirs at some other store. They got the same heart. They're producing this stuff too. And at the same time that they're doing whatever they want in sin, they're also trying to establish their righteousness. They're trying to get God off their backs, or please God, or appear that they're right. And this is what the human heart is always trying to do. Whatever it wants, and to justify itself before God. To do enough extra credit to say, I'm really not that bad. We're okay, aren't we, God? So can I go back to doing what I want? Ooh, I shouldn't have done that. I feel terrible. Beat myself up. Okay, I'm going to be better now. I'm okay now? Go back to my sin. We do this all the time. It's the nature of our hearts. Uh, one of our better singer-songwriters, uh, Sufjan Stevens, has a song about this. It is highly offensive to some people because of uh, what he says about human nature. It's called John Wayne Gacy Jr., and if you're not familiar, John Wayne Gacy was a uh, serial murderer. So his father was a drinker, his mother cried in bed, folding John Wayne's t-shirts with his swing set hit his head. The neighbors, they adored him for his humor and his conversation. Look underneath the house there, find the few living things rotting fast in their sleep over the dead. Twenty-seven people, even more, they were boys, with their cars, summer jobs, Oh my God, are you one of them? He dressed up like a clown for them with his face paint white and red. And on his best behavior, in a dark room, on the bed, he kissed them all. He, kissed, he killed 10,000 people with a sleight of his hand, running far, running fast to the dead. He took off all their clothes for them. He put a cloth on their lips, quiet hands, quiet kiss on the mouth. And in my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. Yeah. So, uh, very powerful song, uh, very uh, controversial song, for lots of reasons. Um, there are lots of things about Christianity that are highly objectionable to people. And I think nothing is ha- harder to swallow than what Scripture says is true of human nature. 
And I think, frankly, if you're able to swallow this, then all the other stuff falls in line pretty quickly. Those other things that are hard to swallow are the way God goes about addressing this. But buying into this, that uh, deep down, uh, there's not much separating me from a serial murderer, is really hard for us. Uh, And I'm not saying that you're serial murderers, but I'm saying we are all capable of the river of filth that proceeds from the human heart. And we all have things that we love, things that we do, things we don't want to give up, that we're deeply ashamed of, and we tuck them away and hope no one ever, ever, ever finds them. We all do that. Something under the floorboard. We don't want anyone to find it. Yeah, that's what makes us hypocrites. You know, hypocrisy is not a thing that's uh, common just to Christianity. It's a human condition. We all do this. Well, um, I hate to ask this, but what, what is that thing for you? That thing tucked under the floorboards, swept under the carpet. That one thing you uh, really, really know is wrong. You know it deserves to be on this list. Maybe it's even up there. And uh, you would be terrified. You would feel completely exposed. You would feel like a different kind of human being if someone found out. What is that in your life? And um, this is the really hard part. Are you at a place, because it's possible you can know what that thing is, and then at the same time say, so what? <laughs> like, I don't care. Or to say, it's not my fault. But are you able to do what this text says, which is to say, I know exactly where that comes from. It's from right here. It comes out of this. It's part of who I am. I do this. It's me. It's my fault. I'm not going to blame shift. I could. Other things have influenced me. Yeah, I didn't have the easiest childhood or whatever. Or, uh, yeah, my roommates were really hard to love. Or, and you could go on with excuses. But are you able to own that it's your heart that comes from you? The good news, and there is good news, because so far <laughs> I've done nothing but shovel the hard stuff onto you, is that there's a, you don't have to live trapped in this house with things rotting under the floorboards. You're not trapped to live in this house of death uh, with this stuff just under the surface and you're trying so hard to put on the face that you got it all together and you're good and you love Jesus and you love everybody else and everything's perfect and I'm fine. You don't have to live that way. There's hope. There really is hope. And uh, there's hope for two reasons. Um, first, and I'm going to do these too quickly, um, First, we have, we have a word that reveals our hearts. Uh, this, this text, as much as it's about sin and the heart in Jesus, is also about Scripture and how these folks have misused it and avoided it. And Jesus reveals. He, he, he throws it all off and says, you've missed it, this is the way it is. Jesus speaks and says to everyone there, come on guys, your heart's like this. And that's completely different than being the only person in the world that steps out and says, Am I the only person that's like this? And Jesus saying, everyone's like this. And then you saying, yeah, me too. I'm one of the seven billion people that's like this. Jesus reveals the nature of the human heart. And this is what the Word does. This is what Scripture does. This is what the Ten Commandments are supposed to do. It's supposed to tell you what God's like and mirror how you don't reflect that. 
And if you study it and actually allow it to speak, instead of substituting easy things and taboos and truisms, uh, you'll find it will push you. It will push you out into the open, to be honest. Now, if there's no hope and there's no grace and there's no healing, that's just exposure and that's painful. <laughs> you know, it's, okay, here I am, naked and messy before the world. What now? Well, we're just going to leave you like that. Oh, I'm going to go back and hide now. Uh, but there's actually hope. The Word pushes us out and exposes us. And we find there that there's a Jesus that heals. We didn't read the passage. It's not up there. I'm going to read it. It's short. Uh, Jesus leaves this encounter and goes far away. Uh, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And uh, shorthand, this means pagan land. Okay, <laughs> He's gone to where all these good people here, supposedly good people would say, uh, there's nothing but really, really bad people there. Why are you going there? He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. That's because even there his reputations preceded him. Immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and followed his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed, the demon gone. It's a very enigmatic passage. It's hard to understand. It seems like Jesus is being hard. And he sort of is, but there are reasons. But I don't want you to miss the main thing. Jesus has gone to the outside, to the far outskirts. If there is a place that would make you unclean, and there's not, this would sort of be it. He's gone there. And he's seeking rest, probably because he's never actually had time to recover from the fact that his cousin was murdered in cold blood by the king. He's been seeking rest ever since then. Maybe he's trying to get it now. And here comes a woman. Syrophoenician, which means Canaanite, which in Bible means really, really bad, evil person, <laughs> knocking on the door, who needs something. And uh, Jesus seems reticent to heal her, and you have this sort of like strange, it's like Jesus is the Sphinx giving riddles or something. But what he's basically saying is, the time's not now. The time's not now for me to do my mission to the Gentiles, to bring it to the world. I was called first, the people of Israel. There is a plan. It's going to proceed, but not now. And he actually has very good practical reasons why not now is a good idea. Uh, but this woman's persistent. See, Jesus didn't say no. He didn't say get out. He didn't say go away. He simply said, you know, there's bread and it's for the people at the table. And she, out of desperate need... You see, her daughter was sick. She cares for her daughter probably more than she cares for herself. She recognizes her need out of desperate need and out of deep faith in Jesus says, scraps are enough. A scrap of mercy, a crumb of bread, Jesus, is all I need from you. Just a little bit. And Jesus says, faith? It's faith. It's, that's what you need. For this statement, you may go your way. The demons left your daughter. Um, the word reveals us what we're reveals to us what we're like, and, and Jesus heals our hearts when we come to him in faith. He knows exactly what we're like. He knows what we need. He has the power and the grace and the love to address our hearts, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to give us new hearts. We just have to pursue him in faith. Last question for the night. Lots of characters in this story. Interesting characters. Very, very super spiritual people. 
Um, Syrophoenician women that are far from biblical religion, that are desperate, need help, and come to Jesus boldly. And then a bunch of disciples who don't understand. And Jesus basically says, you still don't understand? Which one are you? Which one are you? you don't get to be Jesus, by the way. You never get to be Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. This doesn't happen. You've got to be one of the other three. Where are you? Yeah, maybe, maybe it doesn't fit perfectly, but you probably fit into one of these three. Uh, you're the person working really hard. You're crossing the T's and dotting the I's. You're, you've got a pretty clear idea of what you need to do to please God. At the same time, you're fostering all this sin that you really love. And you're not so sure you're close to God. You're not so sure that verse 6 isn't true of you. Yeah, I look good, but actually I haven't felt close and intimate to God in a long, long time. Or, or maybe you're the Syrophoenician woman. You're not sure you know much of anything about <laughs> what's going on. Uh, and you're not even sure you know what you think about what I just said about the human heart. But you know you need something. And you're pretty sure Jesus can bring it. Or maybe you're the disciples. You're just confused. You're following Jesus, and that's good. And you feel like you should understand, and maybe you should. But you're following. Well, good news. You can keep following. And for all three of you, you don't have to do anything remarkable. You don't have to fix yourself. You don't have to do every jot and tittle of the law, and you don't have to do extra credit. You have to be honest about who you are and what's in your heart. You have to be real about yourself. And then look up and notice that you have in Jesus a Savior that already knows exactly what you're like, who's willing to heal your heart. Okay, let's pray together.